Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. We are currently on Chapter 10, entitled Political Policing. Joint Terrorism Task Forces and Fusion Centers One of the major formations of political policing is Joint Terrorism Task Forces, JTTF. Created in the 1980s, these units combine federal and local law enforcement to look for terrorist threats. Since such threats are rare, they appear to have shifted their role to monitoring political activity. JTTFs function with no public oversight, especially at the local levels, which has caused at least two major cities, Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco, to pull out. After 9-11, Congress eliminated many restrictions on political spying. While there is some history of political violence from fringe elements of the environmental and animal rights movement, the scope of surveillance seems sweeping and indiscriminate, though the true scope is unknown, since we must rely on rare legal actions or leaks to find out about it. In 2002, it was learned that the Denver Intelligence Unit had a binder with the JTTF active case list that included information about the American Friends Service Committee, the Colorado Campaign for Middle East Peace, Denver Justice and Peace Committee, and the Rocky Mountain Independent Media Center. In 2003, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Denver JTTF added, quote, anarchist, end quote, and other, quote, political extremists, end quote, to the FBI's violent gangs and terrorist organization files. In 2008, the ACLU uncovered that the Maryland State Police has spied on local death penalty and peace activists for years, classifying 53 individuals and 20 organizations as terrorists. The list was circulated to the local JTTF and surrounding local and federal law enforcement agencies. Nothing in any of the surveillance files indicated any illegal activity. On September 24, 2010, as part of a JTTF investigation, FBI agents raided the homes of several people active in opposing U.S. policies in Palestine and Colombia and who had participated in planning demonstrations at the Republican National Convention in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2008. The search warrants focused on obtaining information from computers and other sources of alleged, quote, facilitation of other individuals in the United States to travel to Colombia, Palestine, and any other foreign location in support of foreign terrorist organizations, including the FARC and Hezbollah, end quote. Twenty-three people were subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury, but all refused. No criminal charges or specific accusations of criminal activity have emerged, leading to claims that the raids were politically motivated. Despite having evidence that turned out to be linked to actual violent attacks, JTTFs have played a limited role in preventing attacks or prosecuting terrorists. In the year before Major Nidal Malik Hassan shot 13 people to death in Fort Hood, Texas, the JTTF was aware of his extremist views and ties to Pakistan, but took no action against him. Another post-9-11 form of political policing is fusion centers. Created to help federal agencies share information about potential threats, the focus has shifted to cover, quote, all hazards and all crimes, end quote, and to include state and local partners, private sector interests, and the military.
As with JTTFs, there are no clear lines of accountability, and according to a U.S. Senate report, little indication that they have prevented any terrorist activities. They have, however, been at the center of both conflating political activism with terrorism and in coordinating intelligence on nonviolent political movements. In 2008, the ACLU of Massachusetts obtained a Fusion Center document on standard operating procedures that authorized surveillance and intelligence gathering of public meetings absent any connection to criminal behavior. Even a single anonymous speech act or social media post advocating illegal activity, including civil disobedience, could trigger a full investigation. Hold on, let me get some water real quick. And I think we are we almost to a changing of the theme and we'll have a reflection then. In 2009 and 2010, two fusion centers listed supporters of third party candidates, including those backing libertarian Ron Paul as potential threats, linking them to the militia movement. The Pennsylvania Homeland Security Office was found to be using paid consultants to monitor environmental peace and gay rights groups, and then reporting the findings to local businesses, including the Hershey Company and oil and gas companies engaged in the politically fraught fracking business. Some of the reports compared these nonviolent political organizations to al-Qaeda. The contract agency involved was also under contract to provide private security to many of the same companies. Fusion centers have also been implicated in monitoring the Occupy movement and coordinating local efforts to end it. A report by the Center for Media and Democracy found that, quote, terrorism liaison officers, end quote, were monitoring and reporting on the activities of Occupy Phoenix, including attending meetings and demonstrations, infiltrating the organization, and following social media activity. Major cities' as chiefs of police, the police executive research forum, and fusion centers across the country were actively gathering daily headcounts. The documents also show that they had access to, quote, Stingray, end quote, cell phone surveillance equipment, facial recognition, and massive data mining software that could pose a huge threat to the privacy of political activists and their organizations. These intelligence agencies prepared regular reports for banks and other financial institutions targeted by the Occupy Wall Street movement. Because of the loose association between Anonymous and Occupy, their reports on hacking threats sometimes included Occupy social media activities, conflating illegal hacking with social media organizing. The Partnership for Civil Justice Fund also uncovered, through litigation, evidence that the FBI treated Occupy as a, quote, terrorist threat, end quote, even before it undertook its first action. While there is insufficient evidence to support claims by Naomi Wolf and others that the federal government organized or coordinated the local efforts to shut down Occupy, it is clear that federal intelligence agencies working with law enforcement were actively gathering and sharing information about the movement with each other and with financial institutions. In the end, the decision to break up Occupy encampments in hundreds of cities was made by local political leaders and carried out by local police, though the timing and tools used to accomplish them may have grown out of federally coordinated information sharing. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. 
again. And I think one of the things that I didn't touch on previously when we started speaking about uh, the political policing in the first segment is how also 9-11 was used as an excuse to increase and to create anti-terrorism units to uh, the, there was an uptick in the in, in the type of racism that was experienced by uh, Middle Eastern Americans or people immigrants from the Middle East and uh, and Muslims and people in Muslim communities and again we see uh, policing being distinctly tied to race and to uh, racism and to uh, the criminalizing and vilifying of anybody who is not the prototypical American, anybody who is not, that doesn't look like the founding fathers. And I think that within here, within this chapter, we see how 9-11 was used as an excuse to, within, internally within the federal government and within police, police departments was used as an excuse to uh, take away people's privacy, to uh, take to in, impede upon people's rights, and all for political reasons and for political motives. And it, it lets you understand how, how, how and why there is such little change in this country and why change moves at such a slow pace in this country because anybody with any type of revolutionary ideology, anybody who has any type of belief or anybody who takes any type of action that is about changing the status quo, the moment that they become successful in some of those undertakings, the moment that they gain followings in some of those undertakings that become public enemy number one to the state, that become criminalized by the state. And, and then the state is backed up by uh, the federal government, as we see in, in, in most, of these, most of these motives or in most of these cases here. And so I think that th that's just what stands out the most in that passage there. Uh, Okay, let's move on to the next segment. Entrapment. Police have fought the war on terror nationally and locally through widespread surveillance, entrapment, and inflaming public fears with little increase in public safety. Whistleblower Edward Snowden, with the help of journalist Green Grinwald, helped to expose the true extent of government spying, which violates constitutional principles and existing laws. Americans have come to understand that their telephone and electronic communications are not secure and that this is being done in collusion with major communication corporations. The government has yet to produce a single terrorism case from this surveillance. In 2004, the NYPD arrested 24-year-old Pakistani immigrant Shawar Martin Siraj for plotting to bomb the Herald Square subway station in Manhattan. Lawyers say Siraj was entrapped by a paid police informant facing drug charges, who spent months hatching the plot and pushing the idea of a bombing. Siraj had, quote, no explosives, no timetable for an attack, and little understanding about explosives, end quote. According to Human Rights Watch, the NYPD's own records show that he was unstable and, quote, extremely impressionable due to severe intellectual limitations, end quote. When asked to participate in the plot, Siraj replied that he had to ask his mother first and never actually agreed to participate, according to the NYPD's own assessment. Nevertheless, he was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. 
One second. Let's see. All right. <clears throat> In 2011, Rezwan Ferdo was arrested by the FBI for participating in a plot to blow up the Pentagon and U.S. Capitol. He was targeted by an FBI informant who infiltrated his local mosque, coaxed Ferdo into the plot, and supplied him with fake weapons, although it was clear he had a mental disability. As the plan unfolded, Ferdo's condition deteriorated dramatically. He lost control of his bladder and began to suffer from seizures and extreme weight loss. Eventually, his father had to quit his job to care for him. Despite this, Ferdo was convicted of supplying material support to terrorism and was sentenced to 17 years in prison. These cases were held as proof that the police were winning the war on terror. The NYPD undertook a massive secret spying operation run by its, quote, demographics unit, end quote, targeting Muslim and Arab communities throughout the city without any specific probable cause. Documents obtained by journalists Matt Apuzu and Adam Goldman describe the undercover operatives dispatched to mosques, cafes, community centers, and college campuses to search for hints of extremist viewpoints and to learn the social, cultural, and political layout of these communities. Comings and goings at places of worship, snippets of conversations in local bookstores, and the social activities of student clubs were regularly reported. On my own campus at Brooklyn College, an undercover officer posed as a recently converted Muslim and integrated herself with Muslim students in their clubs, attending weddings and social events, only to be discovered because of her involvement in an unrelated investigation. Leaked documents indicated that police informants traveled with these clubs and reported on their membership, activities, and guest speakers, despite the complete absence of any history or evidence of criminal activity. The program never generated a single lead related to terrorism. The New York Civil Liberties Union sued in 2013, alleging that the program violated people's right to free religious association and denied them equal protection under the law. As recently as 2015, however, the NYPD continued to carry out surveillance of Muslims without proper authorization. These practices are counterproductive and substantially undermine the credibility of police. Most real information about extremist violence is obtained by community members reporting on people who they fear are up to no good. Oh, hold on. All right, we're going to have to get we got to change these batteries out real quick. Give me one second. These practices are counterproductive and substantially undermine the credibility of police. Most real information about extremist violence is obtained by community members reporting on people they fear are up to no good. However, when whole communities feel discriminated against, abused, and mistrusted, they are less likely to come forward for fear that their role will be misunderstood or that well-meaning but mistaken tips will hurt the innocent rather than sparking an honest investigation. In the words of the ACLU, this type of policing makes us both less safe and less free. All right, crowd control. The next next segment here. Uh, let's see, wait a minute. Okay, here. Let's have a reflection on a segment that we just read through. Okay, so in this entrapment segment, I think one of the things that stands out the most is 
the way that the police decide that somebody is guilty before any type of crime has been committed, the way that police decide these communities, these neighborhoods, these uh, religious groups, that these people are guilty, people with different political political beliefs, political ideologies, that simply having a certain skin color or having a certain belief system or having a certain religion makes you guilty of something. And we see in the story of uh, Mr. Siraj and in the story of uh, Rezwan Ferdo, Ferdo, I'm not sure if I'm, I know I'm not pronouncing that right, so I apologize. But we see how the police decided those men were guilty. And after deciding that they were guilty, they found something for them to go to prison for, to go to jail for. And the same thing would happen during the civil rights movement. They would decide that these black leaders, that these, even these uh, white college kids uh, or white priests, white pastors, they would decide that these people who were trying to gain equal and equitable rights for black people and people of color, that they were guilty for doing that. And then they would later on find something that they could make them be, get them convicted of. They had decided Martin Luther King Jr. was guilty because of his stances. They had decided that uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael was guilty because of his stances. And Huey Newton and uh, all of these different people were guilty because of their stances. And so they took actions to... Uh, not to, not even to prove the guilt, but to be able to convict them of something, to be able to have something to have them arrested for. And, and in doing those things, I think it's important to point out the type of that they didn't just do that to get rid of this individual person. They did it to get rid of this person and also to send a message to people from that community, to send a message to people from that religious group, to send a message to people from that uh, movement that if you possess these same type of views and if you take actions around those views, if you espouse these views, that this is something that you too can be at risk of happening, uh, risk of having to happen. And... Mm. And this is something that we see that was done at a federal level and at a local level. And so, again, I think there, the other important concept to take away from this book is that all the things that you see people struggling against at a federal level, at a national level, must also be struggled against at a local level and vice versa. Crowd control. Protest policing in the United States is generally organized around strategic philosophies of how to manage protest activity. In the 1960s and early 1970s, the police operated under a philosophy of, quote, escalated force, end quote, meeting militant protesters with overwhelming force. In response, a new doctrine of, quote, negotiated management, end quote, emerged that called for the protection of free speech rights toleration of community disruption, ongoing communication between police and demonstrators, avoidance of arrests, and limiting the use of force to situations where violence is occurring. Today, however, two major forms of protest policing predominate. Both severely restrict the right to protest. The police in New York City and some other jurisdictions insist on, quote, command control, end quote, techniques, in which they micromanage all important aspects of demonstrations in an attempt to eliminate any disorderly or illegal activity. This approach sets clear and strict guidelines on acceptable behavior based on very little negotiation with demonstration organizers. It is inflexible 
It frequently relies on high levels of confrontation and force in relation to even minor violations of the rules. This does not represent a return to escalated force because it attempts to avoid the use of force through planning and careful management of the protest. When this fails, force is used, but only in the service of reestablishing control over the demonstration. This is a highly managed system, not characterized by uncoordinated uses of force or police riots as seen in the 1960s, in which police supervisors were seen chasing after their officers to try to keep them from beating protesters in the streets. Another form of protesting, of protest policing, the quote, Miami model, end quote, emerged nationally in response to the disruptive protest at the World Trade Organization meetings in Seattle in 1999. It is named for the Miami Police Department's handling of protest at the free trade area of the Americas meetings in 2003. This style is characterized by the creation of no protest zones, heavy use of lethal weaponry, surveillance of protest organizations, negative advanced publicity about protest groups, preemptive arrests, preventative detentions, and extensive restrictions on protest timing and locations. This set of tactics is reserved for groups that the police believe cannot be controlled through micromanagement, such as those who do not apply for permits and threaten direct action or civil disobedience not coordinated with the police. Such groups are arrested while lawfully gathering and held in detention for long periods while awaiting arraignment, often in poor conditions. They are also likely to be the subjects of extensive police surveillance and to be accused of planning violence. They are often met with high levels of force in the form of, quote, less lethal, end quote, weaponry, such as pepper spray, tear gas, and rubber bullets. The Miami model has also been driven in part by the broad militarization of civilian policing as described in previous chapters. My fault, Mike not working with me, sorry about that. Some argue that militarized riot control is merely prudent preparation. For example, in Ferguson, Missouri. Shouldn't authorities take whatever steps they can to protect life and property? There are two major problems with this line of thinking. First, it is not at all clear that these measures advance public safety. Second, the right to protest cannot be abridged because of the threat of illegal activity or even the commission of violence nearby. All this militarized posturing failed to prevent widespread looting and property destruction in Ferguson. Neither local police nor the National Guard could adequately protect local businesses. What they could do was attack protesters and the media with tear gas and smoke grenades. Law enforcement officers were distracted from the real threat. The few dispersed individuals and bands of people attacking local businesses and further inflaming tensions and undermining the credibility of local police. In addition, It is quite possible that the militarized response of police immediately after the shooting of Michael Brown and their continued aggressive posturing contributed to the outbreaks of violence and property destruction. People subjected to tear gas and baton charges often react by either fighting back or dispersing into small groups to engage in property destruction. Those watching on TV may be motivated to come out and defend those being attacked in a similar manner. People have the right to protest despite the presence of violence or property destruction nearby. 
Even when there is isolated criminal conduct within a demonstration, police have an obligation to target those engaged in the legal behavior without criminalizing or brutalizing the entire demonstration as long as its primary character remains peaceful. The First Amendment guarantees the right to protest and American criminal law requires the police to act on individualized suspicion. Collectively punishing, collectively punishing protesters because they are protesting while others are setting fires is an abridgment of fundamental rights. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And we'll go ahead and we will finish this chapter in this episode. This will make this episode maybe run a little bit longer. But I want to have a reflection upon what we just read. Now, out of all the different forms of policing that we have read about within, within here, political policing is the one that I have the most uh, experience dealing with. As many people listening to this know, this, we, we record the majority of these episodes outside of the City Hall in Rockford, Illinois, as part of an active direct action that is going that has taken place in the form of an occupation of City Hall. Uh, it's, when we first began occupying City Hall, it was a much more extensive direct action. Uh, we've gotten to the point now where it's one, two people uh, sometimes. Uh, there's even been times where because of the lack of uh, the lack of numbers we've not had anybody out here anymore uh, we've or anybody out here at a period of time we still have made sure to be here every day and that's going on 597 days uh, but i say all those things to say that from may 30th of 2020 to where we sit here whatever point you're listening to this whatever day you're listening to this i have dealt with a assortment of forms of political policing when it comes to the protest that I have been involved in and the organizing that I have been involved in, we have not dealt with the New York City model of command and control techniques. We have dealt with the Miami model, which was, which is characterized by the creation of no protest zones. When we've, we're at, we've been to City Market, which is an event that takes place here that we, pro, we, had, a, we had protest at uh, and that we have also protested because of some of their the actions that they've taken. Uh, there were no protest zones that were created. Uh, when we protested, uh, it was a protest that took place here called, uh, it was a counter demonstration or a counter event to a back the blue rally that took place. And we went there and we protested the people supporting the police. And again, there was no protest zones created. When we first came to the occupation in City Hall, we were in front of the South Side doors. And while being in front of those South Side doors, people were arrested. And then, a, again, a no protest zone was created. And then we moved to a different area. And so we have also dealt with the use of le less lethal weaponry. On May 30th, 2020, multiple people were shot with, uh, multiple people were tased. Multiple people were shot with rubber bullets. Multiple people were shot with, myself was shot with a, a pepper spray munition, where it's just like a, a basically a pepper spray bullet that hit me in the face and uh, exploded upon contact. There were people beat with batons. There were preemptive arrests that were made. People were arrested before anything, any type of illegal activity had taken place. There were certain people who were throwing rocks and certain people who were throwing fireworks, but instead of dealing with them individually, as they pointed out, should be done, they went and they dealt with them. They collectively assaulted and victimized multiple people 
who were involved, uh, multiple people just for being in the same area that these protests were taking place in, as opposed to finding the specific people who were involved. Uh, and I think that, let's see, preventative detentions, we've dealt with those things happening. Uh, one of last year during city market in 2021, uh, before some of these events would take place, there would be arrest warrants that would be issued for different people. And they would uh, come out and uh, uh, they'd come out and uh, arrest different activists based on things that had happened a week before or a week prior before the event that we were having that day took place. And uh, the same thing during the first set of, and I'm sort of all over the place, but I'm just trying to touch on how we've experienced all these different things. And uh, one second here. And I think that, as I, man, my fault, I ain't, we don't got the table. We used to record this on a table and I could be able to sit the mic and everything down without... The cord moving all over the place So I'm sorry about this episode There's been a lot of noise in the background With the cord moving We had a couple of drunk drunk people come by Making some noise too So sorry about that uh, But uh, also we know We've seen how in 2020 and 2021 And even still now People were There was preemptive criminalizing And leaking of news stories To different media outlets To try to vilify people who were part of protests and demonstrations that were going on. And and so I just say all those things to say that I have personally dealt with these tactics because of my political beliefs, because of struggling against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I have seen these things take place firsthand, the beating of women, the beating of teenagers, the pepper spraying of children, the false arrest and false imprisonment. When I was, or the first time I was arrested during pro, for pro, uh, for protests that were going on here, I was arrested for walking on a crosswalk. I was charged with mob action, and then I was I sat in a, a jail with a t-shirt and shorts in a freezing cold jail for ten hours before I ever got booked or processed. And once I was booked and processed, I was charged with a misdemeanor, and I was released, you know, within thirty minutes. Uh, I have had a phone, phone, megaphones confiscated that I've yet to still receive back. And I've seen multiple other people involved with these, uh, involved with the May 30th Alliance deal with similar type of tactics uh, surrounding political policing. And so uh, I think that if you know anybody who has dealt with any of these forms of policing, one of the things that's important is to converse with those people and to talk to those people to get their, uh, to get their experience into learn how these things affected them specifically. I think that uh, it humanizes these issues a lot when you when you do that. Okay, hold on. Okay, alternatives. It's going to be a longer episode again. Alternatives. A more effective approach might try to do two things. First, political leaders who bear ultimate responsibility for the outcomes in Ferguson, could have attempted a political solution to their problems. The governor could have initiated a real conversation about the economic, social, and political dynamics that have contributed to the profound alienation of African Americans in the St. Louis area, if not more broadly. Openly rethinking the hodgepodge of poorly funded municipalities and schools, largely designed to facilitate white flight from St. Louis, as well as the basic functions of the criminal justice system, could have gone a long way to restore public trust and divert attention from the specifics of Darren Wilson's case. 
Local politicians knew that a criminal indictment was highly unlikely, but took no steps to reduce the rage they knew would result. Second, local officials could also have attempted to dial back the police's posture toward the protests as threatening and illegitimate. Protests are by their nature disruptive and disorderly. The attitude of police in St. Louis County has been to treat that as a fundamental threat to the social order. There really is almost no legitimate reason to deploy armored vehicles and snipers to manage protests, even those where some violence has occurred. Officer protection is an issue, but so are police legitimacy and constitutional rights. In response to the events in Ferguson, Representative Hank Johnson from Georgia introduced a House bill ending the 1033 weapons program. It was unsuccessful, but may have contributed to President Obama's decision to reduce the program slightly. In 2016, however, the Obama administration announced that it was reconsidering even these limited reforms in the face of opposition from military hardware producers and local police. President Trump is likely to expand these programs, leaving it up to local jurisdictions to decide the extent of military equipment they want their police to have. One second, y'all. Brother, I gotta get something to drink. And I guess I could be like stopping the episode and starting it again for me to drink, but I'm not trying to do all that. I hope this ain't too much of an inconvenience. Okay. <clears throat> Groups like the Million Hoodies Movement for Justice and the ACLU continue to organize nationally against this militarized approach to policing. In 2016, a group of Los Angeles high school students forced the L.A. school district to return a variety of military equipment obtained under 1033, including MRAP grenade launchers and automatic weapons. These weapons programs should be abandoned and military equipment returned and destroyed. Even when the weapons are not used, they contribute to police viewing the public as a constant threat and conceiving of the world as divided between evildoers and the good guys. Human nature is profoundly more complicated than that. And a police force that lacks a nuanced understanding of this will invariably slide into aggression and violence and intolerance. However, getting rid of the weapons and returning to a negotiated management style of protest policing is not without potential problems. Negotiated management is only useful when protest actions are orderly and organized. Police need cooperative partners to communicate with. This approach also presumes the legitimacy of a system that severely restricts the time, place, and manner of protest activity in line with the Supreme Court rulings that prioritize order over the right to assembly. Instead, we need to reduce the political conflicts that generate disruptive protest movements. American democracy has been continually undermined by concentrations of wealth and political power in the hands of a smaller and smaller group of wealthy donors and corporate interests. Contentious protest activity will increase as long as there is the freedom for it to do so. When normal political channels are closed off, street politics become more common. 
This can be seen in the rise of the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, and Black Lives Matter, all of which expressed profound alienation from existing political arrangements and took to the streets as an alternative. Decisions about the granting of permits and the plans for deploying police should be largely removed from police control. Police may share their views about traffic management and serious security risks, but decisions should be in the hands of elected leaders operating within legal frameworks that protect the right to dissent. This shift will not be without problems. Some leaders will undoubtedly politicize the decision-making process in ways that benefit some groups and not others. This will, however, make clearer the lines of accountability that today are often masked by a technocratic framework. Police make discretionary decisions about when, where, and how groups can protest based on their own threat assessments, which have always been clouded by political bias. That political influence is hidden behind the police bureaucracy. Police have no legitimate role to play in monitoring, much less actively subverting social movements not actively engaged in violence and property destruction. Widespread surveillance, intelligence gathering, and the use of paid informants and undercover officers should be forbidden unless there is specific evidence of serious criminal activity. Even then, investigations should be severely limited in scope and overseen by civilians. Without oversight, abuses always emerge. The temptation to cast a broad net and to interfere with movements that disrupt the social order is too great. If the threat of politically motivated violence is so large, why not involve outside monitors to ensure that police don't overstep their authority? Concerns about secrecy and professional expertise are specious at best. There is no reason to think that suitable guardians of the public interest can't be found. Judges confronted by the abuses of, abuses of political policing should appoint such monitors on a permanent, not temporary, basis and give them full access to all records and personnel. Our basic democratic values demand nothing less. The role of police in terrorism investigations must be similarly curtailed. As with the Palmer raids, the threat has been at times severely overstated to encourage public support for broad-reaching police powers that are almost always used against nonviolent domestic political groups. The drive to get results has encouraged entrapment and guilt by association tactics that fly in the face of fair judicial process, something that far too many judges have been willing to overlook. We must also confront the role of U.S. domestic and foreign policy in producing political violence. George W. Bush worked very hard to prevent any discussion of the U.S. role in fomenting a terrorist backlash by labeling the terrorists as, quote, evildoers, end quote. The reality is that U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East has played a major role in inspiring such movements and making us a prime target for their anger. We need to rethink our relationship to Gulf oil countries that practice despotic rule and provide ideological and financial support to terrorists. We must also rethink our largely uncritical relationship with Israel, whose actions in the region have been incredibly destabilizing and whose behavior in Gaza and the West Bank have inspired widespread revulsion, some of which blows back on the United States in the form of both international and domestic terrorism. The best way to avoid political violence is to enhance justice at home and abroad. Rather than embracing a neoconservative framework of retribution, control, and war, 
we should look to a human rights and social justice framework that seeks to ensure universal health care, education, housing, and food, as well as equal access to the political process. Goals we are far from achieving. All right. And that brings us to the end of the end of policing. That's the last chapter of the end of policing. There is a conclusion that we will read for the next episode and do a and do a review. Sorry about that. It's loud. We outside. We outside. This was, a, again, another longer episode, but I didn't want to split these chapters up into pieces. And I think I spoke a lot about my experience with political policing and, and touched on that. I think that I hope that that was helpful. And then I think he did a great job of tying everything together there at the end, tying in uh, global issues with the United States, with issues that we face here in the country. So please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. We'll be back tomorrow with the uh, conclusion and with the recap summary of the end of policing. And then after that, we will begin reading a new book. And I'm not really sure what that will be yet, but... I will talk to you tomorrow.